Hallelujah. Father, we are reminded in the pages of Scripture of the privilege of the windows of Revelation opened up to your servant who, otherwise limited by our humanity and our fallenness, your glory remains unknown to us. But Father, as Isaiah saw the curtains of his mortality and his humanity peeled back into that vision of the throne room of the Almighty, and he cried out in fear of his own holiness and in a just astounding joy and worship at your glory, especially as you touched his lips. And John struck as though dead alongside Ezekiel when the heavenlies were open to them. Lord, we see the power of the revelation of our God affecting your servants in the pages of Scripture. Today, Lord, as the pages of Scripture are open to us, we pray that you would use even the preaching of your word to do the same. We pray that the windows of revelation, who you are, what you've done, your glory, your beauty, your power, your justice, your holiness, your salvation, your steadfast love, your kindness, your mercy, your grace, may these be revealed to us in such a way that we cry out, Lord Jesus, that the blood of Christ might cover our sins, and then we cry out in joy and worship, adoration and praise, realizing with fresh assurance that our sins are washed away, that Christ has saved us sufficiently at the cost of his own blood. And now we join with him in his rule and reign to declare the kingdom rights of our God and Savior across this globe and wherever you lead to the praise of his great name. Lord, would you peel back the layers of our sinful obstinance today as we have sung these songs that herald your name and that we open the scriptures that proclaim with authority Jesus Christ is Lord. May we bow in our heart and soul before the King of Kings this day that he might be glorified, your church be sanctified and your kingdom advance in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Well, today with thankfulness and with humility, I pray, we just want to acknowledge the grace of the Lord upon us in gathering us, His people, and in prayer for those who can't be with us due to illness, as we have remarked earlier in the service. It's a good reminder, a fresh reminder of the kindness of the Lord in our health and our ability to gather and to worship Him. There's truly no greater privilege in all the earth than to gather in the name of Jesus and lift up the praise that he so deserves. So maintain that heart of adoration and worship as you're able today as the word is proclaimed. Today we turn in our Genesis series to chapter 40 and we continue to mark another moment, here a turning point in the story of Joseph, which doesn't show up quite yet, but two years later, the events that we read today will become important in Joseph's life we'll see a little glimpse of how the Lord works through circumstances to advance the cause of His name and the purposes for His servant. Today, a title for our message might be A Prophet and Providence. A Prophet and Providence. That prophet being Joseph. I don't know if you've thought of Joseph as a prophet, but today we'll recognize that call on his life as evidence in this chapter. And also the providence of God, which is His working, His design for all things, all events, and all aspects 
of this world unto the cause of his will and the praise of his name. The aim of this morning's message is to feature, therefore, the purposes and glory of God through the suffering and anointing of Joseph. Suffering those tribulations we talked about last week that he continues to go through in our chapter today, as well as the anointing of God, the calling, and the office of prophet in which he served. With that introduction and your Bible and hearts open, let's stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word as you're able today. And uh, turn in your scriptures to Genesis 40, and listen as this chapter is read in your hearing today. This is the Holy Word of God, verse 1. Sometime after this, a cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. Verse 5. And one, night, and one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. Here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Verse 16. When the chief baker saw that the, that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream, and there were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating out of the basket on my head. Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, verse 20, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. This is the word of God. You may be seated. An interesting twist in the plotline of Joseph's life designed by the providential hand of God. Let's begin with a question for you kids. So kids, listen up. I'm going to ask you what the following have in common. So what do, think of the life of Joseph. What do these things have in common? 
sheaves, heavenly bodies, grapes, cake baskets, cattle, and grain. What do all those have in common? Kind of a difficult question, unless you've been paying close attention over the last few weeks. And two of those are references to come. Once again, what do sheaves, heavenly bodies, grapes, cake baskets, cattle, grain, and grain have in common in the life of Joseph? Anybody know? Very good. I heard some consulting in the front row. Any answers? Cal, what would you say? The same thing? That's correct. So the answer is these were the subjects of six dreams that Joseph experienced either by revelation or by interpretation. So in chapter 37, by revelation, dreams that Joseph received, you remember the sheaves of grain bowing, as well as the heavenly bodies, sun, moon, and stars. The second set of dreams occurs in our chapter today, chapter 40, and that would be the dream of the grapes on the three branches, with a cupbearer, as well as the three baking baskets on the head of Pharaoh's baker. And then the two other subjects, uh, themes of the dream, are Pharaoh's himself, which we will experience in the next chapter, and that would be the cattle, the, uh, the uh, uh, weak ones, or the famished ones eating the strong and so forth, as well as the grain, a similar picture. So it's interesting, it raises this question, does it not? Why does the Lord speak to and through Joseph by way of dreams? We'll seek to answer that in our text today or as an aside as we, or as we learn about the calling of Joseph in greater de detail from chapter 40. So these were the subjects of his dreams that he encountered by revelation and interpretation. And we learn in Genesis chapter 41 that Joseph's troubles would continue for another two years, by the way. So 41.1, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And then there's a turn of events that leads to Joseph's being freed from prison. But in the meantime, uh, we uh, have him in this interesting set of circumstances interacting with these two officers, again, from Pharaoh's court. The, while it would be two years before Joseph would serve under Pharaoh, nevertheless, the events of chapter 40, our text today, would prove to be a turning point, hence their documentation in our text. <clears throat> I have a quote for you. This is the uh, Reformation Study Bible. And I just love this quote. It summarizes the significance of Joseph's life and ministry in its commentary on chapter 40 as follows. This is in your notes if you have a copy. Quote, God exalted faithful Joseph over all Egypt by giving him supernatural wisdom, the ability to interpret dreams, and skill in political economy and statesmanship. Joseph prefigured Moses at the founding of Israel and Daniel at the end of Israel's monarchy. All three were oppressed captives who came to power in a hostile land by pitting God's wisdom against the wise of this world, displaying the superiority of God's wisdom and His rule over the nations. They, of course referring to uh, Joseph as well as Moses and Daniel, they prefigured Jesus Christ, the incarnate wisdom of God who is raised from the dead to rule the world. We've taken as a theme of Joseph's life, Messianic Ascension. And this theme is not unique to him, but there were others who shared in similar office and role as him. Among them, Moses, as well as Daniel. And we see these parallels. And this is what the commentators are saying. 
And it's really incredible to look at the overview of these men's lives and see that in spite of the hardship and the troubles that they faced, their lowly exile, humiliated status, nevertheless, the wisdom of the Lord and the word of God ended up ruling the day. And in the contest of authority versus authority, or wisdom versus wisdom, Moses defeats Pharaoh at 10 interactions as all the plagues fall upon Egypt. And again, Daniel, as he lives through administration after administration, yet the through line through that era was Daniel's influence and administration or a council in multiple administrations of world empire at the time. And we see the same thing uh, predating those men in the story of Joseph. And in chapter 40, the groundwork of God's will and purpose is, through his providence, is being laid to accomplish this very thing in the life of his servant. Chapter 40 features details reinforcing the calling and testimony of Joseph. This would be, this would be Prince Joseph can rely on the supernatural intervention of Yahweh alone. It's kind of interesting. There's a little bit of almost sounds like a desperate plea. Please do me a favor. Put in a good word for me for Pharaoh. But humans being the dummies that they are, the cupbearer immediately forgets Joseph. As soon as he's restored to his position in Pharaoh's court, it would be two years before Joseph gets some reprieve in this regard. Not even the cupbearer whose dream as interpreted by Joseph came true remembers to put in a good word for him. Yet, remember the theme of last chapter? The Lord has not forgotten Joseph. And though he remains in prison, God is speaking to and through his servant as a prophet to king's officials. And that is what we see in our text. Let's consider Genesis 40 in light of the following. Four key words, providence, prophecy, politics, and prototypes. I was able to summon uh, four words, all beginning with the letter P. I hope you're proud of me. Providential instruments in the first portion will consider how God orders the circumstances to accomplish his call for his son. Secondly, a prophetic calling. We see Joseph serving in the office of prophet. Thirdly, political dynamics. Joseph interacting with the rule and the order of the day, the administration of this uh, empire through its officers, and finally, gospel prototypes, pictures of Christ and Christ's work that we see yet, yet here, or even here in chapter 40. So let's consider this chapter in light of providential instruments. First of all, the occasion of imprisonment, incarceration occasion. If we follow the chain of events leading up to Joseph's rise to save his family, the covenant family, or his messianic ascension. It is quite a fascinating study. It's extra fascinating in the case of Joseph because quite a few chapters detailing this chain reaction or this causal chain of events that God has ordered to accomplish his will is given in great detail. There are other passages in scripture, of course, where God's works are recorded, but seldom with the same amount of detail as it pertains to an individual and his interactions, events and circumstances, and how they led up to God's purposes. Please remember, it's as true in our lives as it was in Joseph. If you're in the middle of any given uh, circumstance which God has ordained for you, or life course, or calling, it requires faith to understand almost at every point in Joseph's life, I'm sure he could relate to the truth that the just shall live 
by faith. And I'm sure he could relate to the rest of the saints who've gone before whose example is given to us in chapters like Hebrews 11. Because when you're in prison and you've been falsely accused, you've been framed for attempted rape, you've been sold as a slave, you've been removed from your familiar surroundings, it is hard to believe the word of God if you look at just those things that was given to you by way of dream when you were a precocious 17-year-old wearing your father's many-colored coat that singled you out as extra special. Well, Joseph certainly in the flesh, in the natural, given these circumstances, would not feel extra special at this time. Perhaps desperation and despair were his chief enemies as he sat here in this pit, so to speak, in this prison. Yet God was using the occasion of imprisonment to order the circumstances to accomplish his will. There was a necessary and divinely ordered chain of events leading to Joseph's messianic ascension in this incredible story. This chapter opens as a result of two officers in Pharaoh's charge committing crimes or committing some sort of offense against the crown. 40 verse 1, Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. Notice how God even uses sin and negative circumstances such as this to accomplish His will. This is the great mystery of God's awesome sovereign power. Even the wickedness of man becomes a tool in the hand of our God to accomplish His will. This was the case when He raised up servants to slay His Son as an atoning sacrifice for His people. These are the classic examples through Scripture, but it does our soul good to be reminded of them. Assyria raised up as a hammer to discipline his people. Babylon raised up as the consequences for the sin of Judah to bring them into captivity. And again, it would be difficult, Daniel and his friends, imagine them in chains, much like Joseph, and his, who uh, Psalm 105 tells us, his neck was in a collar of iron and his feet were in fetters, hauled away to a foreign land. It would be difficult to believe that there was purposes in this event. But nevertheless, we see a pattern through Scripture, a principle and a reality for us that God uses the crimes of the king's officials, uh, getting them prison time to accomplish his will. This becomes more clear as the story unfolds. So we're not sure what these crimes were or the offense against the crown. Nevertheless, the actions of these high-ranking officials earned them some time in jail, and they were waiting for a hearing, as it were. They must stand, uh, we don't know exactly how much time passed, but they were in a holding cell awaiting a day of reckoning where they would stand before the court of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh, as the sovereign monarch, would rule in the case. The charges would be read against them, presumably, and he would say guilty or not guilty according to his will and pleasure. And of course, this happened later on his birthday. Now, the second thing God used in this text is the emotions of the king. Pharaoh was angry, verse 2, with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So God uses crimes and emotions to accomplish his will. Do you see how incredible it is to view the purposes of God and the events of history from the heaven's eye view? It gives us faith that no matter our feelings or the women fancy of those who hold power in our day, how much they might like to defeat the purposes of God, we find example after example through history and in the scripture that that is an impossible task. The harder you try, the more tools you give the Lord to accomplish His holy purposes. 
Pharaoh had no idea why he was angry other than the immediate, the effects that he felt in his emotions due to the offense that his officers committed against him. A deeper reason, a deeper cause in this for the anger of Joseph was, was that God was going to use this king and his reactions to accomplish his will. Do you remember in the scriptures in the book of Proverbs, which says that the heart of the king is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord? Imagine, if you will, the hand of the Lord, so to speak. And as he tilts it, he tilts the heart of Pharaoh towards anger. And as Pharaoh's heart is tilted towards anger, he acts on that emotion. And he condemns or he commits his two officers to prison. And while they're there, there is a divinely orchestrated meeting with the servant of God, Joseph. And this becomes important later. Thirdly, we see that they were interned in Joseph's prison. Presumably, there are many places, possible locations, where people could be held in custody in any large, and grow, in any large holding or nation, any empire. But the Lord purposed that Joseph would be in the very place where Pharaoh's officers would also be confined. Verse 3, He put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. Hey kids, remind us, if you remember, what is the name of the captain of Pharaoh's guard? We were introduced to him in the last chapter. Potiphar, Potiphar is correct, thank you. So note, Joseph is in Potiphar's house prison, as it were. So Potiphar is in charge of all these detainees, of all these inmates. And there, also, the cupbearer and the baker are thrown in. And so now the three of them are there in this place, in the custody of the captain of the guard, which was Potiphar, presumably, in the prison where Joseph was confined. For something very interesting. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them, and they continued for some time in custody. Do you remember what we noticed in 39? That Potiphar, the captain of the guard, did not condemn Joseph to a capital punishment, for the crime, if he, believed, if he truly believed it, that was worthy of death, attempted rape of his own wife. No, instead, he threw him in prison, but he did so in such a way um, that Joseph was allowed, Potiphar was in charge of this prison, to have certain influence and to carry out his administrative duties even within that confined space. God was using the abiding favor of Potiphar in the life and calling of Joseph. In spite of the events of the prior chapter, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, Potiphar needed to save face before his officers and friends and so forth, I'm sure, before his colleagues in the administration of Egypt. He also needed to acknowledge his wife. He didn't want to say that she was a liar, I'm sure, but there's something deep inside of him that knew Joseph, I suggest, there's something deep inside that knew Joseph was a good man. Now, the circumstances are somewhat comparable, I suggest, to Darius and Daniel. Daniel was framed as well. Uh, you know, the disingenuous wise men passed a law that you could only pray to the king for a period of time. Of course, they caught Daniel red-handed, which was the design of this legislation. And Daniel then, because the king's law could not be broken, and he, even he was bound to it, had to be thrown in the lion's den. So against the better judgment and against the preferences of Darius, nevertheless, Daniel was thrown in prison. But the king's favor remained with him 
as Daniel was thrown in with these wild beasts. Do you remember the heart of Darius the next day? He had the stone removed right away. Daniel, Daniel, are you okay? Never fear, my king, my God has shut the lion's mouths. In a similar sense, the favor of the Lord appears to be on Jacob. Even though he's in prison, Potiphar is entrusting him with the ordering of this place as well. Just as Joseph ruled Potiphar's household at one time, now he's conducting the affairs within this prison. And finally, under providential instruments, not only is God using the prison inmates, Potiphar's favor, but he's also using precise timing. So God is not waiting for waiting's sake. Part of the purpose for waiting to accomplish his will is to train and to temper Joseph for sure, but it was also to order the necessary circumstances to cause God's purposes to come to pass. Think about it. It was necessary... I suggest that the dream of Pharaoh itself occasioned the cupbearer's appeal, appeal, not its obligation, not his obligation to Joseph. Uh, let me explain. 41.1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up, and then it's a record of his dream, cows and grain. Verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. What does he mean, I remember my offenses? Well, I have broken my vow, he says, basically. I've broken my promise to a fellow inmate to mention him to you when my dream came true. And he says, to, he basically brings to Pharaoh's attention the fact that Joseph can interpret dreams and had interpreted his own. If the cupbearer had kept his promise immediately upon his release, Pharaoh may not have been all that interested and he might have dismissed it as well. Perhaps this two years, perhaps over these two years, the cupbearer was not only restored to his position, but also to the trust of Pharaoh. Over these two years, as the cupbearer continued to faithfully serve his master, the memory of his offense would retreat further and further in Pharaoh's mind. And as Pharaoh thought less and less ill and more and more positive about this man, perhaps at that two years, at the occasion of Pharaoh's own dream, he trusted his cupbearer enough to act on his advice and to summon Joseph from prison. And now he had more reason to do so than just a favor owed to a cupbearer. Well, Pharaoh didn't owe him anything, although he owed, technically speaking, a favor to Joseph, the cupbearer did. But now there is all the reasons for Joseph's release are lining up. So you see the precise timing that God is orchestrating? It was necessary that the dream of Pharaoh occasion the release of Joseph. And perhaps over this time, the cupbearer gaining favor with Pharaoh now will be listened to when he brings this interesting fact to the attention of the king of Egypt. There is a man who God has given the power to interpret dreams. Dreams are very important in ancient times. An interpretation of dreams would get you a position of importance in the court of the Near East magistrates for sure. And thus, all of these things were providential, providential instruments in the hand of God, advancing his cause through his son, Joseph. Secondly, a prophetic calling. Considering Genesis 40 in the light of providential instruments. And secondly, prophecy, a prophetic calling. 
How do we know that Joseph was a prophet? Well, he considered himself a prophet. Notice verse 8. They said to him, We have had dreams, and there was no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Now, at first, you might read that and not think twice, but there's almost a contradiction in that sentence until you understand how both can be true at once. How does it make sense that Joseph says, interpretations belong to God, please tell me your dream? Wouldn't it be more natural to say, I have the power to interpret dreams, tell me your dream? Now, the way that those two statements are resolved is called the office of prophet in Scripture. A prophet is one who God appoints to give his word to those whom he speaks. A prophet is the mediator of the word, the intent, the will, the decree of God to the audience. And serving in this role, or and in this acknowledgement that Yahweh, the Lord, is the one who interprets dreams, tell your dream to me, Joseph is acknowledging a prophetic anointing on his own life. The reason he can tell the interpretation of Pharaoh, the cupbearer, the baker, or even his own dreams is because God had given him that ability. God had given him prophetic insight. Joseph was faithful in this regard to always give the credit and glory to the Lord. It was God who had given him the dreams when he was but 17 and also given him the meaning. It was God who is preserving the memory of his word with his servant along the way and faith that in due time, God would bring it to pass. And it was God as well who was giving him the interpretation of these two officers' dreams. And the reason any of this is true, so far as Joseph was concerned, is only because God had given him the calling of a prophet. This prophet received the word of God in a unique way. God tended to speak to Joseph through dreams and speak through Joseph by dreams as well. We remarked at the beginning of this message three sets of dreams that Mark there's sort of milestones in the calling and life of Joseph. The first pair of dreams is what he himself received his messianic ascension call. The second set is from these two men here, the baker as well as the cupbearer. And then the third set of dreams occurs in the next chapter. Those are the two dreams that Pharaoh had. Why did God choose to reveal himself to Joseph and through Joseph by way of dream? Well, think of Daniel. That provides an answer by more, when, with more clues as well. Daniel was called and given the ability as a prophet to interpret dreams as well. And he was given dreams. We think of all of the revelation that he wrote towards the end of his book that was delivered to him by way of glorious vision. Particularly significant, given the value, or dreams were particularly significant, for the Near East, and especially kings and people who assume some place of rule over the people, given the assumptions and the worldview of the day. Monarchs, the ruling elite of the culture of the ancients, placed a lot of weight and importance on dreams. Now, everyone can relate to the idea of a dream, can they not? But usually dreams are pretty incoherent. People project and suggest they have meaning, and some people might claim to interpret them, but a lot of times, most all the time, it's just a bunch of fanciful New Age speculation and really has no substance. However, notice how God himself, in his condescension and in his sovereign plan, used the worldview of the pagans as an inroad to bring his gospel. And God has done this through all of history. People have often remarked historians, secular and Christian alike, have acknowledged that it was the advent of the printing press 
that God used, the Christians say, and the uh, secular would may not acknowledge the uh, ultimate source, but certainly the power of that printed word to advance the cause and the ideas of the Reformation. And we are heirs of that significant moment in history today. Now, these days, we have the advantage of instantaneous virtually spread of information online. And videos can go out all over the world, but so the gospel can go with it as well. Joseph lived in an age, and Daniel did, where people value dreams. So what did God in his mercy and in his kindness do? He introduced himself to kings and people in authority through dreams, waking them up in a cold sweat, causing them to, sh to shudder in their boots until they acknowledged the sovereign who was Lord over them. This is the case of Nebuchadnezzar, the case of Pharaoh, the case of Darius and, and others that uh, these men interacted with. God will do that today, brothers and sisters. We tend to think with the people of old that the elite and ruling class has all the power and we are nothing but oppressed. But we serve a greater king still. We should go forward with the confidence of a Moses and a Joseph and a Daniel. Why? Because we serve the one who can interrupt in the night hour and give Abimelech, the king before whom Abraham was shaking in his boots so much that he lied and said his wife was his sister, a dream and say, you better not take this woman as your wife or I will kill you. Abimelech wakes up and he's upset. Why? He's upset because Abraham has not told him the truth. He's upset because he was not introduced to Yahweh by his servant, Abraham. It's popular theologically these days, consider the sojourner call, you know, marking the, call, the calling of a Christian and so forth. And sometimes that's used as an excuse to say, we really don't have much influence or say in political affairs. Or there really isn't much that the church has by way of advice and counsel and law appeal to the rulers and magistrates of today. That is not true, saints. Abraham, though he was called to be a sojourner and never owned any property in the land, was scolded and disciplined by the Lord for not telling the king the truth. But he must bow and serve the maker, the creator. We are called to tell the truth, no matter how much worldly power someone has. And we will have the grace and the confidence to do so when we recognize that we serve a greater king still. And Joseph was a good example in this regard. He was faithful, whether in prison or in the courts of the king, to recognize that Yahweh is sovereign. And so God spoke to him in and through dreams. And this was a calling customized for the exile that he endured, as well as others did, as we have mentioned. Joseph confessed that he was a prophet inasmuch as, God, as he said God exclusively interprets and that he would interpret, meaning he was, the, uh, he was called by God, commissioned by God to speak in this manner. And it's also interesting to note, as we mark Joseph's calling, that there are parallels and foreshadowings of Christ. Was Joseph a prophet? Yes. Was Joseph a king? Well, one can say pretty close. He served in a kingly magisterial position when he was elevated to second in command. Was Joseph a priest? Well, he served in a priestly way as he intervened on behalf and mediated in the cause of his family, raised up as a representative to save the people of God from famine. In a real uh, typological way, Joseph prefigures and foreshadows Jesus by serving as prophet, priest, and king. Now, Joseph, of course, was not the Messiah. He was just used by God as a means of revelation to show how salvation, ultimately speaking, would come one day. 
There is a famine of the soul that can only ultimately be satisfied by the bread of life, Jesus Christ. And there is a sovereign over eternity. There's just the only one, Jesus. And there's only one way and truth to get to him. And that is through the sacrifice of Christ, who is what? The perfect prophet, priest, and king. Typically, in the order and economy of theocratic Israel, the way that Israel was ordered in the Old Testament, those offices were distinct. You could be a king, but you were not a priest and so forth. But there are a few exceptions in Scripture. Melchizedek and Joseph among them, and David at times, who served in sort of a multi-office capacity, reminding us there, it was an echo of something to come. It was a foreshadowing and a pointing forward to a Messiah figure, Jesus Christ, who would serve everything, the once and for all, the sufficient sacrifice, the sovereign, the Savior, and sacrifice, the perfect prophet, priest, and king. So we've considered Joseph, I'm, I'm sorry, Genesis 40, and Joseph, in light of these providential instruments and this prophetic calling, let us consider a third word, politics, the political dynamics. Consider Genesis 40 in light of political dynamics. We've mentioned a few of these, but let us just catalog them because we really could use encouragement in this regard in our day. So the chief cupbearer, verse 9, told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me. Cupbearer. Uh, verse 16, When the chief uh, baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. Two offices. Now, for us, you would think, well, uh, something comparable, a chef and somebody in charge of ordering things, the affairs, um, you know, setting the table and preparing the meals. It doesn't seem all that important. Well, you'd need to get yourself uh, the context and put yourself in the ancient world to really understand how important these officers were. When you look back at the hieroglyphics and the pictures of ancient Israel, uh, Egypt and other, you know, similar empires and so forth, what you find is these two guys would have been absolutely prominent officials in the cabinet or administration of Pharaoh at the time. It was one of the highest honors and one of the most important roles to be preparing the king's food. You know, it was common for kings to have enemies and they would want to poison him. So the cupbearer had to be implicitly trusted, absolutely trusted. One of the king's closest, often friends and confidants. We see this, a picture in the case of Nehemiah who because he feared the Lord was trusted by the king and he served as cupbearer and he had the king's ear, he had the king's love, he had the king's loyalty and the king's implicit trust. These men were important figureheads and officials in the administration of the greatest empire on earth at the time and Joseph was not intimidated, not intimidated in the least. There was political ramifications for what was going on here, but Joseph served with confidence and authority in spite of these circumstances he found himself in. Serving in Potiphar's house, a captain of the guard who had a snap of his fingers could take his head. Serving at the pleasure later of Pharaoh, organizing all the affairs necessary, the logistics and administration to save the known world from famine. One small error in this regard, and he would be ashamed and could be easily killed. But Joseph interacted in the context of highly politically charged environments where a lot was on the line and the stakes were very high. He did so boldly with godly authority because he knew who was greater than Egypt, who was greater than Pharaoh, greater than Potiphar, greater than a cupbearer, and greater than a chief baker. Is biblical wisdom any less necessary today than it was then? 
for the administration of kings. Joseph was a great blessing and benefit to Egypt. I'm sure at the time, and if they haven't been found, they will perhaps one day records of ancient Egypt showing the blessing and favor of a foreigner, a Hebrew, who is very helpful in governing the affairs of this incredibly complicated economic system. This was godly authority when John Calvin wrote his magnum opus, revising it several times, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. I would say anointed by God to systematize and categorize biblical thinking in a very preeminent way. An incredible book explaining the glories of the coherence of the Bible in Reformation terms, terms reclaiming much of what was lost during the eras of apostasy and profanation uh, through the West as the church had lost sight of the sufficiency and the supremacy of the Word of God. At the beginning of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, it's one of my favorite elements in the book. It's dedicated to the King of France. Why? Because, jo uh, because what Calvin, Calvin knew, what, what Joseph did, that biblical wisdom was necessary and indispensable and invaluable for the administration of any political order, that a nation would not be blessed unless the Lord was her God, and that a nation would be greatly blessed and would be encouraged and enabled in that calling if faithful men uh, who were called to be ministers of God's word had the authority and the boldness and the conviction to tell the truth to the president and his cabinet members and those who are in authority. These political dynamics served thus as an opportunity for the word of God to make inroads and then to expand, no doubt, and move beyond. No doubt when Joseph assumed the second in command, people would ask, who is this guy, Hebrew? Why is he there? Why is he so important? This happened with Moses as well. Many followed the Israelites out of Egypt. Why? Because God used his words, speaking truth under highly charged political situations to advance and to magnify the cause of the gospel. And he will do it today if we but interact in a way that is faithful to him. Joseph was faithful to deliver bad news. It doesn't seem like it would serve him well to tell a very important official, oh, I'm sorry, three days after, uh, you know, your, three days after this, your head will be required of you and you'll be killed. The prophets who were faithful to the Lord throughout the Old Testament were faithful not to just give good news or project positive things, but to bring the bad news as well. And we are called to be faithful in this task. Now, the stakes were high. There would, be a bit, there would be a large motivation, I'm sure, for Joseph to kind of cover over or to, I mean, he's going to die anyways. You know, what difference would it make? No use getting him upset. Maybe I could have two guys put in a good word for Pharaoh or whatever. But he didn't use the opportunity to manipulate the circumstances. He simply told the truth as the Lord had revealed it to him. He was faithful. <clears throat> There's a modern application of this, is there not? Relevant insights from the whole counsel of God's word are necessary and invaluable to the administration of any government in any age. A faithful minister, those who are appointed to do so, ought to deliver these trained insights that they learn by discipline and spirit-led devotion to the sufficiency of scripture. We have a responsibility to speak to all areas of the economy and life and thought and the order and the social order of the world in which we live. 
I've often railed from this pulpit against what I call the evangelical inferiority complex. We go forth not as if we serve the King of Kings who has risen from the dead and ascended, but often we go forth with timidity and we seek, if we're an evangelical influencer, to gain a seat at the table by sometimes soft-pedaling the truth and we think if we can be there and have the ear of somebody, then perhaps I can influence a little bit, a little here or a little there. Did Nathan do this in the case of David when he said, You, O king, are the man, and called him out for his individual sin? No, he did not soft-pedal the truth. He was faithful to deliver the bad news. You, O king, like any other sinner, must repent and trust the Lord and not exploit and use your position for self-advancement or justification. Otherwise, and, and if you continue to do so, not only will it put you and your household in jeopardy, but this entire people. Therefore, the stakes are even higher for you, O king. You know, recently, a good example, a couple years ago, a fellow I wouldn't normally recommend, Jonathan Kahn, who fancies himself a sort of, I don't know, kind of a messianic Christian or something like that, mixing some of in his information or some of his theology, a few of these kind of Jewish overtones. But I believe he's a true believer, however, and preaches the gospel from a pulpit on the East Coast somewhere. Anyways, he fancies himself to be something of a prophetic voice. And there was one time which I agreed with him right shortly after uh, the election of uh, Joe Biden, our current president, where he called him to repentance based upon his approval of abortion and other things. And he spoke the truth. He was faithful to deliver the bad news. And I actually shared that video and said, this is a good example of a prophetic voice of someone who might have the ear of an administration doing well. But I couldn't help but think, what if Donald Trump had been elected? Would the same man with the same evangelical leaders be faithful to deliver the bad news? You see, it's easy sometimes to deliver the bad news to the opposing party. But when the better of two evils takes you know, the throne, as it were, or it comes into power, then the conservatives tend to soft-pedal the truth and tend to mischaracterize and lionize and, and, and create a hero out of their particular, a particular political favorite and so forth. You know, uh, this is great because it strategically allows us the best possible circumstances under this political situation that we face, right? We don't want our civil liberties to go away, so this is the best that we can do under the circumstances. That is pragmatic, short-sighted thinking that's afraid to give the bad news to people who are responsible for doing rightly, and the consequences are great if they fall short. You know, just to call out some names and give another example, because I'm putting myself on the spot here, Scott Jensen, who is running for governor in our state, was recently featured in a commercial, and I could barely watch it till the end. He was holding, this a doctor who has delivered multiple little babies, holding in what I would view as very unnatural way of newborn infants saying, it's disingenuous that my political enemies would say that I will do anything to combat the rights of abortion in this state. Fact is, the government has nothing, the governor has nothing he can do the, uh, in Minnesota, abortion is a constitutional right in our state. He knows it, and this is just an attack against me. And it wasn't that long ago, I myself, I should have recorded it, was here in our town, in the town square, at one of the, I hate these kinds of things, but I was there nevertheless, at a town hall meeting, and I talked to Scott Jensen one-on-one, -on -one, and I said to him, will you commit to me to veto anything, any piece of legislation, directly or indirectly through health and human services or other means sends a single state dollar to Planned Parenthood or any other quasi-medical institution that would take the life of the unborn? Will you commit to me to do that? He said yes. 
And then he went in that commercial and lied and said, there's nothing that I can do. So if this message ever got out to Scott Jensen, me as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ is obligated to tell him to repent. We don't look at our enemies use of abortion in order to diminish our political chances to then soft pedal the truth and retool our message at the expense of unborn children. God appoints people as he will. It is time, I don't care what your political party is or how much seems to be on the line to stop compromising, soft peddling the truth and God's word for the sake of the next election and so forth. This is a huge idol as far as I can tell in our world today. And it's time for us as Christians to have the courage to give the bad news. That until we repent of our sin, that we've indulged in this land, by political position, administration, legislation, democracy, fiat, and otherwise, until we repent of this, we are in dire straits. Joseph gives convicting encouragement to men like myself who I don't, you know, I don't pretend to have any influence, but if God should give someone like myself or anyone else who's charged to pastor or preach the word of God, the ear of the magistrate, we had best be ready to give the bad news, the hard truth that God has spoken. And in our land, we fall short of his, we have fall short of his commandments and we must repent. What does repentance look like in your administration? And so we can learn, even in the political dynamics, there is opportunity as Joseph testifies and exemplifies to preach truth to power for the sake of Christ and his glory and the sake of our nation. Lord, give us repentance. Finally, this morning, we're considering Genesis 40 in light of providential instruments, a prophetic calling, political dynamics, and gospel prototypes. There are three echoes of the gospel in this passage that I find fascinating. The first is resurrection. Joseph, one commentator has said, went from pit to prince, of course, by way of God's sovereign hand. And it's something of a resurrection story. Joseph, who was humiliated and as good as dead by all rights, was lifted up of that state and lifted up as a savior for his people from famine. So in this sense, we see even in the calling of Joseph, there's sort of a resurrection echo or foreshadowing. Joseph went from pit to prince as God had decreed the lifting up of Joseph's head unto the saving rule in Egypt. In our last chapter, there were three references to God being with Joseph. That really set the tone and theme. Well, if, you, if we take that same pattern and apply it to chapter 40, there are three references to lifting up your head. This is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. In three days, verse 19, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. He made a feast for all the servants, verse 20, lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. There are two ways that heads are lifted up. Um, Lift up your heads, O gates, the king of glory may come in. We read in our worship text this morning, Psalm 24. There's a lifting up of the head, which is an exaltation unto glory, a sort of a resurrection or assuming a rightful place of prominence and glory uh, that was once veiled or lost. And in this case... Joseph was awaiting the lifting up of his head. But as a prophet, and waiting for God's precise time, 
He nevertheless prophesies a lifting up of the head of the cupbearer. He would arise again to his place of prominence within the court of the Pharaoh. And so there's another sense, though, of the lifting up of the head. And this is like the polar opposite. In the, Greek, or in the original Hebrew, I'm told there's an idiom, which literally means to lift off the head. Lift off the head of one's body, a reference to slaughtering or death, execution, capital punishment, decapitation. So in the second dream, in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Resurrection, forgiveness, and condemnation. Three gospel echoes. First, there's the story of Joseph, and then there's the prophecy of the cupbearer, a lifting up of the head. A once condemned state gives way to forgiveness and to restoration. A resurrection in Joseph's case, a, a forgiveness in the case of the cupbearer. The king welcomes him back into the courts. And I love to look at the substance of some of these dreams and see what pictures the Bible might pick up elsewhere. There's a crushing of the grapes. It's associated with his vocation. It's interesting later that in the New Testament, a crushing of the grapes, the wine would refer, would picture the very sacrifice necessary in order to lift up our heads. We were once condemned to death, justly so. You notice in our context here that the cupbearer, presumably, and the baker were guilty of the same crime. One was lifted up, the other was killed. What made the difference? Well, in this case, we're not quite sure. Could have just been the arbitrary whim of Pharaoh, but it sort of sets the stage for that question to be answered later, does it not? The crushing of the grapes of Jesus, as it were, the crushing of his body and broken blood, like that is pictured in communion, and if you will, even in this dream that the cupbearer had, that is what makes the difference between those who are condemned to prison for a capital crime, either being lifted up and resurrected and restored or being put to death. What kind of death did the other man receive? That's interesting as well, is it not? In three days, even that time frame seems significant in light of the gospel. Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Isn't that something? Resurrection, forgiveness, and condemnation are all featured in our text today by way of echo and type. Whereas wine is a picture of the cost of forgiveness, absorbing, or I, and according to the word of Joseph, the cupbearer was restored. So this humiliation and death on a tree is a picture of condemnation in the utmost. In this three days time frame pictured here is a crime worthy of the death penalty committed by two men. This crime, presumably, if we just take the context on the face of it, was worthy of a humiliation of hanging on a tree from which one man was spared and which the other was condemned. Brothers and sisters, in our sin, we have transgressed the Almighty. And our crimes in our sin against the Lord is worthy of a cruel death of execution, of hanging on a tree, being condemned and removed from the presence of God and suffering in hell eternal. So what makes the difference? We have the sinner and the saint. Both have committed a crime worthy of capital punishment, humiliation of death on a tree. The one is forgiven, the other is condemned to hell. What makes a difference? We need an Messiah, a Messiah to ascend. Joseph himself anticipates the one who would take his place the antitype to the type, the fulfillment to the prophecy to come, whose own death on a tree 
would purchase our forgiveness, the forgiveness from, for his people, from which he would then ascend to reign and to rule forever and ever. So what is the difference between those, or though everyone deserves that death on Calvary, that cruel condemnation for their sin? What is the difference between forgiveness and condemnation? Another Joseph must arrive, arise. A Messiah must ascend to rule, and that Messiah must endure that death in our place. And so Jesus Christ was crucified on Calvary, on that tree, and he is the answer for all of life's issues. The core individual heart condition before a holy God that renders us worthy of his justice and wrath, he is the answer. And his gospel is the answer to the order of our day as well. And as we bring that message forth, it has the power to reform not just human hearts, but whole societies. And what we need is what Joseph offered in his testimony, confession, and proclamation, the prophetic voice of God's word, calling everyone, whether they be an elite official in the court of the king or a lowly sinner on the dusty roads of Egypt, to repent and to turn to Yahweh, the covenant keeper and the covenant hope. And in his case, to trust that one day that Messiah might ascend to save his own. And we today announce him as having come 2,000 plus years ago, ascending from the grave to save his people, having endured the judgment they deserved on the cruel tree of Calvary. Let us close by thanking him for this this morning. Father, we thank you for your holy word and the message of hope in Jesus Christ. We pray that we would be your ambassadors as your ambassadors would be faithful to take this message wherever you call, whether it's kings and people of high influence and authority or whether it's those of, in our own family, our children, Lord Jesus, who need to hear the gospel. Perhaps someone we run into on the street, a citizen of our land. Lord, the message remains the same. Repent and believe. Jesus Christ is the ascended Messiah. And in his death, it's freedom for our own, from our own condemnation and reunion, reconciliation, and glorious eternity forever. In the meantime, Lord, I pray that you would give us the confidence of ambassadors, the king of the universe, as we seek to be faithful to you and bringing the message of repent and believe wherever you would have us proclaim it. Thank you, Lord, for this time when we can set our hearts and our minds in subjection to your word. And so far as it has been accurately divided, and precisely proclaim today, may we conform to your word and to the image of Jesus Christ, and may it produce fruit following for the praise of his name. Amen.